0: Chapter Eighteen of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susie G. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Chapter Eighteen August Twenty Fifth. I am now quite settled down to my usual routine of steady occupations and quiet amusements, tolerably contented and cheerful, but still looking forward to spring, with the hope of returning to town, not for its gaieties and dissipations, but for the chance of meeting Mr. Huntington once again, for still he is always in my thoughts and in my dreams. In all my employments, whatever I do, or see, or hear, Has an ultimate reference to him. Whatever skill or knowledge I acquire is some day to be turned to his advantage or amusement. Whatever new beauties in nature or art I discover are to be depicted to meet his eye, or stored in my memory to be told to him at some future period. This, at least, is the hope that I cherish, the fancy that lights me on my lonely way. It may be only an ignis fatuus. After all, but it can do no harm to follow it with my eyes and rejoice in its lustre, as long as it does not lure me from the path I ought to keep. And I think it will not, for I have thought deeply on my aunt's advice, and I see clearly now the folly of throwing myself away on one that is unworthy of all the love I have to give, and incapable of responding to the best and deepest feelings of my inmost heart. So clearly, that even if I should see him again, and if he should remember me and love me still—which, alas, is too little probable, considering how he is situated, and by whom surrounded—and if he should ask me to marry him, I am determined not to consent until I know for certain whether my aunt's opinion of him or mine is nearest the truth. For if mine is altogether wrong, it is not he that I love it is a creature of my own imagination. But I think it is not wrong. No, no, there is a secret something, an inward instinct, that assures me I am right. There is the essential goodness in him, and what delight to unfold it! If he has wandered, what bliss to recall him! If he is now exposed to the baneful influence of corrupting and wicked companions What glory to deliver him from them! Oh, if I could but believe that heaven has designed me for this! Today is the first of September, but my uncle has ordered the gamekeeper to spare the partridges till the gentlemen come. What gentlemen? I asked, when I heard it. A small party he had invited to shoot. His friend, Mr. Wilmot, was one, and my aunt's friend, Mr. Borham, was another. This struck me as terrible news at the moment, but all regret and apprehension vanished like a dream when I heard that Mr. Huntington was actually to be a third. My aunt is greatly against his coming, of course. She earnestly endeavoured to dissuade my uncle from asking him, but he, laughing at her objections, told her it was no use talking, for the mischief was already done. He had invited Huntington and his friend Lord Lowborough before we left London, "'and nothing now remained but to fix the day for their coming. "'So he is safe, and I am sure of seeing him. "'I cannot express my joy. "'I find it very difficult to conceal it from my aunt. "'But I don't wish to trouble her with my feelings "'till I know whether I ought to indulge them or not. "'If I find it my absolute duty to suppress them, "'they shall trouble no one but myself.' and if I can really feel myself justified in indulging this attachment, I can dare anything, even the anger and grief of my best friend, for its object. Surely I shall soon know. But they are not coming till about the middle of the month. We are to have two lady visitors also. Mr. Wilmot is to bring his niece and her cousin Millicent. I suppose my aunt thinks the latter will benefit me by her society— and the salutary example of her gentle deportment and lowly and tractable spirit, and the former, I suspect, she intends as a species of counter-attraction to win Mr. Huntington's attention from me. I don't thank her for this, but I shall be glad of Millicent's company. She is a sweet, good girl, and I wish I were like her—more like her, at least, than I am. Nineteenth They are come— They came the day before yesterday. The gentlemen are all gone out to shoot, and the ladies are with my aunt, at work in the drawing-room. I have retired to the library, for I am very unhappy, and I want to be alone. Books cannot divert me. So, having opened my desk, I will try what may be done by detailing the cause of my uneasiness. This paper will serve, instead of a confidential friend, "'into the whose ear I might pour forth the overflowings of my heart. "'It will not sympathise with my distresses, "'but then it will not laugh at them. "'And, if I keep it close, it cannot tell again. "'So it is, perhaps, the best friend I could have for this purpose. First, let me speak of his arrival. "'How oh, I sat at my window, and watched for nearly two hours "'before his carriage entered the park-gates.' FOR THEY ALL CAME BEFORE HIM, AND HOW DEEPLY I WAS DISAPPOINTED AT EVERY ARRIVAL, BECAUSE IT WAS NOT HIS. FIRST CAME MR. WILMOT AND THE LADIES. WHEN MILLICENT HAD GOT INTO HER ROOM, I QUITTED MY POST A FEW minutes TO LOOK IN UPON HER, AND HAVE A LITTLE PRIVATE CONVERSATION, FOR SHE WAS NOW MY INTIMATE FRIEND, SEVERAL LONG EPISTLES HAVING PASSED BETWEEN US SINCE OUR PARTING. ON RETURNING TO MY WINDOW, I BEHELD ANOTHER CARRIAGE AT THE DOOR. Was it his? No. It was Mr. Borham's plain dark chariot, and there he stood upon the steps, carefully superintending the dislodging of his various boxes and packages. What a collection! One would have thought he projected a visit of six months at least. A considerable time after came Lord Borough in his barouche. Is he one of the profligate friends, I wonder? I should think not— for no one could call him a jolly companion, I'm sure. And besides, he appears too sober and gentlemanly in his demeanour to merit such suspicions. He is a tall, thin, gloomy-looking man, apparently between thirty and forty, and of a somewhat sickly, careworn aspect. At last Mr. Huntington's light phaeton came bowling merrily up the lawn. I had but a transient glimpse of him, For the moment it stopped, he sprang out over the side onto the portico steps, and disappeared into the house. I now submitted to be dressed for dinner, a duty which Rachel had been urging upon me for the last twenty minutes, and when that important business was completed, I repaired to the drawing-room, where I found Mr. and Miss Wilmot, and Millicent Hargrave already assembled. Shortly after, Lord Burrow entered, and then Mr. Borham, who seemed quite willing to forget and forgive my former conduct and to hope that a little consolation and steady perseverance on his part might yet succeed in bringing me to reason while I stood at the window conversing with Millicent, he came up to me and was beginning to talk in nearly his usual strain when Mr. Huntington entered the room. How will he greet me, I wonder, said my bounding heart, and instead of advancing to meet him. I turned to the window to hide or subdue my emotion. But having saluted his host and hostess, and the rest of the company, he came to me, ardently squeezed my hand, and murmured he was glad to see me once again. At that moment dinner was announced. My aunt desired him to take Miss Hargrave into the dining-room, and odious Mr. Wilmot, with unspeakable grimaces, offered his arm to me, and I was condemned to sit between himself and Mr. Borham but afterwards, when we were all again assembled in the drawing-room, I was indemnified for so much suffering by a few delightful minutes of conversation with Mr. Huntington. In the course of the evening, Miss Wilmot was called upon to sing and play for the amusement of the company, and I to exhibit my drawings, and though he likes music, and she is an accomplished musician— I think I am in the right in affirming that he paid more attention to my drawings than to her music. So far, so good. But hearing him pronounce Sotto Voce, but with peculiar emphasis concerning one of the pieces, this is better than all, I looked up, curious to see which it was. And to my horror beheld him complacently gazing at the back of the picture. It was his own face that I had sketched there and forgotten to rub out. To make matters worse, in the agony of the moment I attempted to snatch it from his hand, but he prevented me, and exclaiming, "'No, by George, I'll keep it!' placed it against his waistcoat, and buttoned his coat upon it with a delighted chuckle. Then, drawing a candle close to his elbow, he gathered all the drawings to himself, as well as what he had seen as the others, and muttering, "'I must look at both sides now.' he eagerly commenced an examination, which I watched, at first, with tolerable composure, in the confidence that his vanity would not be gratified by any further discoveries, for, though I must plead guilty to having disfigured the backs of several with abortive attempts to delineate that too fascinating physiognomy, I am sure that, with that one unfortunate exception, I had carefully obliterated all such witnesses of my infatuation— but the pencil frequently leaves an impression upon cardboard that no amount of rubbing can efface. Such, it seems, was the case with most of these, and I confess, I trembled when I saw him holding them so close to the candle, and pouring so intently over the seeming blanks. But still, I trusted, he would not be able to make out these dim traces to his own satisfaction. I was mistaken, however. Having ended his scrutiny, he quietly remarked, I perceive the backs of young ladies' drawings, like the postscripts of their letters, are the most important and interesting part of the concern. Then, leaning back in his chair, he reflected a few minutes in silence, complacently smiling to himself. And while I was concocting some cutting speech wherewith to check his gratification, he rose, and passing over to where Annabella Wilmot sat vehemently coquetting with Lord Lowborough, seated himself on the sofa beside her, and attached himself to her for the rest of the evening. So then, thought I, he despises me, because he knows I love him. And the reflection made me so miserable that I knew not what to do. Millicent came and began to admire my drawings and make remarks upon them. But I could not talk to her. I could talk to no one. And— Upon the introduction of tea, I took advantage of the open door and the slight diversion caused by its entrance to slip out, for I was sure I could not take any, and take refuge in the library. My aunt sent Thomas in quest of me, to ask if I were not coming to tea, but I bade him say I should not take any to-night, and, happily, she was too much occupied with her guests to make any further inquiries at the time. As most of the company had travelled far that day, they retired early to rest, and having heard them all, as I thought, go upstairs, I ventured out to get my candlestick from the drawing-room sideboard. But Mr. Huntington had lingered behind the rest. He was just at the foot of the stairs when I opened the door, and hearing my step in the hall, though I could hardly hear it myself, he instantly turned back. "'Helen, is that you?' said he. Why did you run away from us?' "'Good night, Mr. Huntington,' said I, coldly, not choosing to answer the question, and I turned away to enter the drawing-room. "'But you'll shake hands, won't you?' said he, placing himself in the doorway before me, and he seized my hand and held it, much against my will. "'Let me go, Mr. Huntington,' said I. "'I want to get a candle.' "'The candle will keep,' he returned." I made a desperate effort to free my hand from his grasp. "'Why are you in such a hurry to leave me, Helen?' he said, with a smile of the most provoking self-sufficiency. "'You don't hate me, you know.' "'Yes, I do, at the moment.' "'Not you. It is Annabella Wilmot you hate, not me.' "'I have nothing to do with Annabella Wilmot,' said I, burning with indignation. "'But I have, you know,' returned he with peculiar emphasis. "'That is nothing to me, sir,' I retorted. "'Is it nothing to you, Helen? Will you swear it? Will you?' "'No, I won't, Mr. Huntington. And I will go,' cried I, not knowing whether to laugh, or to cry, or to break out in a tempest of fury. "'Go then, you vixen,' he said. But the instant he released my hand, he had the audacity to put his arm around my neck and kiss me. Trembling with anger and agitation, I don't know what besides, I broke away, and got my candle, and rushed upstairs to my room. He would not have done so but for that hateful picture. And there he had it still in his possession, an eternal moment to his pride and my humiliation. It was but little sleep I got that night, and in the morning I rose perplexed and troubled with the thoughts of meeting him at breakfast. I knew not how it was to be done. An assumption of dignified, cold indifference would hardly do, after what he knew of my devotion, to his face, at least. Yet something must be done to check his presumption. I would not submit to be tyrannized over by those bright, laughing eyes. And, accordingly, I received his cheerful morning salutation, as calmly and coldly as my aunt could have wished and defeated with brief answers his one or two attempts to draw me into conversation, while I comported myself with unusual cheerfulness and complacence towards every other member of the party, especially Annabella Wilmot, and even her uncle and Mr. Boreham were treated with an extra amount of civility on the occasion, not from my any motives of coquetry, but just to show him that my particular coolness and reserve arose from no general ill humour or depression of spirits. He was not, however, to be repelled by such acting as this. He did not talk much to me, but when he did speak it was with a degree of freedom and openness, and kindliness too, that plainly seemed to intimate he knew his words were music to my ears, and when his looks met mine it was with a smile. Presumptuous it might be, but—oh, so sweet, so bright, so genial, that I could not possibly retain my anger. Every vestige of displeasure soon melted away beneath it, like morning clouds before the summer sun. Soon after breakfast, all the gentlemen save one, with boyish eagerness, set out on their expedition against the hapless partridges. My uncle and Mr. Wilmot on their shooting-ponies, Mr. Huntington and Lord Lawborough on their legs. The one exception being Mr. Boreham, who, in consideration of the rain that had fallen during the night— thought it prudent to remain behind a little, and join them in a while when the sun had dried the grass. And he favoured us all with a long and minute disquisition upon the evils and dangers attendant upon damp feet, delivered with the most imperturbable gravity, amid the jeers and laughter of Mr. Huntington and my uncle, who, leaving the prudent sportsman to entertain the ladies with his medical discussions, sallied forth with their guns, bending their steps to the stables first, to have a look at the horses, and let out the dogs. Not desirous of sharing Mr. Borham's company for the whole of the morning, I betook myself to the library, and there brought forth my easel, and began to paint. The easel and the painting apparatus would serve as an excuse for abandoning the drawing-room if my aunt should come to complain of the desertion, and besides, I wanted to finish the picture. It was one I had taken great pains with and I intended it to be my masterpiece, though it was somewhat presumptuous in the design. By the bright azure of the sky, and by the warm and brilliant lights and deep long shadows, I had endeavoured to convey the idea of a sunny morning. I had ventured to give more of the bright verdure of spring or early summer to the grass and foliage than is commonly accepted in a painting. The scene represented was an open glade in a wood. A group of dark, scotch firs was introduced in the middle distance to relieve the prevailing freshness of the rest, but in the foreground was part of the gnarled trunk, and of the spreading boughs of a large forest tree, whose foliage was a brilliant golden green, not golden from autumnal mellowness, but from the sunshine, and the very immaturity of the scarce expanded leaves. Upon this bough, that stood out in bold relief against the sombre firs, Were seated an amorous pair of turtle doves, whose soft, sad coloured plumage afforded a contrast of another nature, and beneath it a young girl was falling on the daisy-spangled turf, with head thrown back, and masses of fair hair falling on her shoulders, her hands clasped, lips parted, and eyes intently gazing upward in pleased yet earnest contemplation of those feathered lovers. Too deeply absorbed in each other to notice her. I had scarcely settled to my work, which, however, wanted but a few touches to the finishing, when the sportsman passed the window on their return from the stables. It was partly open, and Mr. Huntington must have seen me as he went by, for in half a minute he came back, and setting his gun against the wall, threw up the sash and sprang in, and set himself before my picture. "'Very pretty, if faith,' said he, "'after attentively regarding it for a few seconds. "'And a very fitting study for a young lady. "'Spring just opening into summer, "'morning approaching noon, "'girlhood just ripening into womanhood, "'and hope just verging on fruition. "'She's a sweet creature. "'Why didn't you make her black hair?' "'I thought light hair would suit her better. "'You see, I have made her blue-eyed and plump, "'and fair and rosy. "'Upon my word! "'A very heavey! I would fall in love with her if I hadn't the artist before me. "'Sweet innocent! She's thinking there will come a time when she will be wooed and won, like that pretty hen-dove, by as fond and fervent a lover. And she's thinking how pleasant it will be, and how tender and faithful he will find her. And, perhaps,' suggested I, how tender and faithful she shall find him. Perhaps.' for there is no limit to the wild extravagance of hope's imaginings at such an age. Do you call that, then, one of her wild, extravagant delusions? No, my heart tells me it is not. I might have thought so once, but now I say, give me the girl I love, and I will swear eternal constancy to her and her alone, through summer and winter, through youth and age, and life and death, if age and death must come.' He spoke this in such serious earnest that my heart bounded with delight, but the minute after he changed his tone, and asked, with a significant smile, if I had any more portraits. "'No,' replied I, reddening with confusion and wrath. But my portfolio was on the table. He took it up, and coolly sat down to examine its contents. "'Mr. Huntington, those are my unfinished sketches,' cried I, "'and I never let any one see them.' And I placed my hand on the portfolio to wrest it from him, but he maintained his hold, assuring me that he liked unfinished sketches of all things. "'But I hate them to be seen,' returned I. "'I can't let you have it, indeed.' "'Let me have its bowels, then,' said he. And just as I wrenched the portfolio from his hand, he deftly abstracted the greater part of its contents, and after turning them over he cried out, "'Bless my stars! Here's another!' and slipped a small oval ivory paper into his waistcoat pocket, a complete miniature portrait that I had sketched with tolerable success as to be induced to colour it with great pains and care. But I was determined he should not keep it. "'Mr. Huntington!' cried I. I insist upon having that back. It is mine, and you have no right to take it. Give it back directly. I'll never forgive you if you don't." But the more vehemently I insisted, the more he aggravated my distress by his insulting, gleeful laugh. At length, however, he restored it to me, saying, "Well, well, since you value it so much, I'll not deprive you of it." To show him how I valued it, I tore it in two and threw it into the fire he was not prepared for this. His merriment suddenly ceasing, he stared in mute amazement at the consuming treasure, and then, with a careless Humph! I'll go and shoot now, he turned on his heel, and vacated the apartment by the window as he came, and, setting on his hat with an air, took up his gun and walked away, whistling as he went, and leaving me not too much agitated to finish my picture, for I was glad, at the moment, that I had vexed him. When I returned to the drawing-room, I found Mr. Borum had ventured to follow his comrades to the field, and shortly after lunch, to which they did not think of returning, I volunteered to accompany the ladies in a walk, and show Annabella and Millicent the beauties of the country. We took a long ramble, and re-entered the bank just as the sportsmen were returning from their expedition. Toil spent, and travel stained, The main body of them crossed over to the grass to avoid us, but Mr. Huntington, all spattered and splashed as he was, and stained with the blood of his prey, to the no small offence of my aunt's strict sense of propriety, came out of his way to meet us, with cheerful smiles and words for all but me, and placing himself between Annabella Wilmot and myself, walked up the road, and began to relate the various exploits and disasters of the day. In a manner that would have convulsed me with laughter if I had been on good terms with him, but he addressed himself entirely to Annabella, and I, of course left all the laughter and all the bandage to her, and affecting the utmost indifference to whatever passed between them, walked along a few spaces apart and looking every way but theirs while my aunt and Millicent went before, linking arm in arm and gravely discursing together at length. Mr. Huntington turned me and, addressing me in a confidential whisper, said, "'Helen, why did you burn my picture?' "'Because I wished to destroy it,' I answered. With an asperity it is useless now to lament. "'Oh, very good,' was the reply. "'If you don't value me, I must turn to somebody that will.' I thought it was partly in jest. A half-playful mixture of mock resignation and pretended indifference— But immediately he resumed his place beside Miss Wilmot, and from that hour to this, during all that evening, and all the next day, and the next, and the next, and all this morning, the twenty-second, he has never given me one kind word, or one pleasant look, never spoken to me, but from pure necessity, never glanced towards me, but with a cold, unfriendly look I thought him quite incapable of assuming. My aunt observes the change and though she has not inquired the cause, or made any remark to me on the subject, I see it gives her pleasure. Miss Wilmot observes it too, and triumphantly ascribes it to her own superior charms and blandishments, but I am truly miserable, more than I like to acknowledge to myself. Pride refuses to aid me. It has brought me into this scrape, and will not help me out of it. He meant no harm. It was only his joyous, playful spirit, and I, by my acrimonious resentment, so serious, so disproportionate to the offence, have so wounded his feelings, so deeply offended him, that I fear he will never forgive me, and all for a mere jest. He thinks I dislike him, and he must continue to think so. I must lose him for ever, and Annabella may win him and triumph as she will. But it is not my loss, nor her triumph, that I deplore so greatly as the wreck of my fond hopes for his advantage, and her unworthiness of his affection, and the injury he will do himself by trusting his happiness to her. She does not love him; she thinks only of herself; she cannot appreciate the good that is in him; she will neither see it, nor value it, nor cherish it; she will neither deplore his faults, nor attempt their amendment but rather aggravate them by her own. And I doubt whether she will not deceive him after all. I see she is playing double between him and Lord Lowborough, and while she amuses herself with the lively Huntington, she tries her utmost to enslave his moody friends, and should she succeed in bringing both to her feet, the fascinating commoner will have but little chance against the lordly peer. If he observes her artful by-play, it gives him no uneasiness, but rather adds new zest to his diversion by opposing a stimulating check to his otherwise too easy conquest. Messieurs Wilmot and Borham have severally taken occasion by his neglect of me to renew their advances, and if I were like Annabella and some others I would take advantage of their perseverance to endeavour to pique him into revival of affection. But, justice and honesty apart, I could not bear to do it. I am annoyed enough by their present persecutions without encouraging them further and even if I did it would have precious little effect upon him he sees me suffering under the condescending attentions and prosaic discourses of the one and the repulsive obtrusions of the other without so much as the shadow of commiseration for me or resentment against my tormentors he never could have loved me or he would have not resigned me so willingly and he would not go on talking to every one else so cheerfully as he does, laughing and jesting with Lord Lorborough and my uncle, teasing Millicent Hargrave, and flirting with Annabella Wilmot. As if nothing were on his mind. Oh! Why can't I hate him? I must be infatuated. But I must rally all the powers I have remaining, and try to tear him from my heart. There goes the dinner-bell. And here comes my aunt to scold me for sitting here at my desk all day, instead of staying with the company. Wish the company were gone. CHAPTER eighteen